We come to the end of the Gideon narrative, although his son is in Judges chapter 9. So we'll look at the entire chapter this evening. Chapter 8, I call this the battle within. So let's begin reading at verse 1. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abietzer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Z. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted but still in pursuit. And he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies were with them, about 15,000, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east. For 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwelled uh, in the tents on the east of Nova and Jogbeha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle, from the ascent of Heres, and he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, seventy-seven men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here, at Ziba and Zalmunna, here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and the thorns of uh, the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. And the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you, that each of you would, uh, would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, We will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw in it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. 
Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in the city Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for forty years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had seventy sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abizrites. So it was, as soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Berit their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbaal, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. Amen. Well, during the time of the pandemic, I had a lot of different thoughts regarding the health officials who made a lot of the decisions. And uh, one of those I'm going to share with you today is I viewed them in a lot of ways, and I wondered if perhaps they were the children who were picked on in high school. They were the shy ones, they were the timid ones, but now they ascended to some sort of power. And see, what can happen often is that sometimes the one who is picked on and the one who is shy, the one who is timid, when they get a little dose of power, we see that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And sometimes the shy, timid, fearful person can become proud and act like a tyrant. Pride is a problem for us all, whether one is the typical boastful, boastful loudmouth or the fearful, quiet person. And certainly we see that trajectory with Gideon here at the end of the Gideon narrative. Gideon was a man who needed assurances from the Lord, but he seems to grow into a man who doesn't need the Lord at all. Now, this is the primary problem for the people of Israel as a whole. And we see this in Gideon's life as he progresses, or perhaps we could say regresses. Because Israel as a whole is regressing. Israel as a whole is becoming like the nations around them. Israel as a whole, as we see in this book, we see the canonization of the people of Israel. They are not doing what Yahweh said according to the terms of the the Old Covenant. They're not worshiping Yahweh solely. They're worshiping other gods alongside Yahweh. And so what Yahweh does is he sends them into captivity. They cry out in pain and Yahweh raises up a deliverer. So we see the degeneration of Israel. But throughout all of this, we see the salvation of the Lord. And the Lord who saves is the one who is to be worshipped. That's what Israel needs to understand. But as we see as we go through this book, Israel doesn't really ever learn that lesson. And so we've seen that the Lord is the one who brings peace with Gideon. The Lord is the one who brings salvation for Gideon. The Lord is the one who brings salvation for the people of Israel. But as we see, pride gets in the way when we get to the end of Gideon's life. Pride gets in the way, and the battle isn't so much, the main battle isn't so much with the Midianites, although that is important. The main issue and the main battle seems to be the civil war that is brewing among the people of Israel. And the main problem is the same problem that we saw last time. That is the problem of man's pride in victory. And mainly, man's pride in victory, when he achieves something, he grows proud and is haughty towards others. He turns his nose up to other people. He thinks he's better of a higher rank than the rest of his fellow mankind. And what this leads to is strife. Strife is a result of pride. 
We don't want to yield. We don't want to listen. We don't think we're, uh, we deserve any sort of criticism. And so there's strife. There needs to be forgiveness. There needs to be forbearing. And certainly we see strife among God's people throughout the book of Judges. Again, no willingness to yield, no willingness to work on issues, no willingness to listen. Concern is only for themselves. And we further see this when pride emerges in the victory. And so in Judges 8, we see how the main battle emerges. The battle is not so much with Midian, but it is within. The battle is with Israel, and as we see, the battle is with one's own heart, especially with the rise of Gideon as a pseudo-king. So we'll look at this battle within under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see Gideon's battle with Israel, verses 1 through 21. And then secondly, we'll see Gideon's battle with pride in verses 22 through 35. So Gideon's battle with Israel, verses 1 through 21. And then we'll see Gideon's battle with pride in verses 22 through 35. So let's first look at Gideon's battle with Israel in verses 1 through 21. And notice we see some sort of battle with Israel. And we see when God's people compare themselves with one another in verses 1 through 3. And as we see, Ephraim is concerned with status. Now, we saw the issues that arose. We saw how God had delivered the Israelites into the hands of the Midianites. We saw this marauding that they did. They came up every year. They, had, they, they swarmed in like locusts. They took every crop. Uh, every field was for the Midianites. Israel was destitute. That's why Gideon is threshing uh, wheat at the wine press. He's hiding. He's trying to grow uh, wheat in a place that you wouldn't think one would grow wheat. So there's a lot of concerns. And so God then says, God raises up a deliverer. God uses this weak one, this one Gideon from the smallest clan of one of the smallest tribes. One who's timid, one who's fearful, one who uh, one who's needs assurances and reminders. And God is pleased to give it to him. And God is pleased to bring the victory. We see how God brought peace through idolatry. He smashed through uh, the, the, the idols in Gideon's father's house, in Joash's house. We see how God brings salvation with the 300 men. And the point of that is to show that God brings salvation, lest anyone in Israel say, we are the ones who brought salvation for ourselves. And so as the cleanup occurred, we saw that Gideon asked for some help from Ephraim. As the princes Orb and Zeb fled, we see that Ephraim helps in this way. We see that in chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. But then all of a sudden, Ephraim gets their knickers in a knot. Ephraim is full of pride. Ephraim is mad that they weren't asked to come to the battle in the first place. They're not mentioned in chapter 6, verse 35. We see it's Manasseh. That's the tribe Gideon is a part of. Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. There's no Ephraim. Now, Ephraim is typically the dominant tribe. And if you go all the way back to Genesis 48, Ephraim is the younger. But he is the one who receives the double blessing. That's why when we get to Hosea, Ephraim is almost uh, uh, interchangeable with Israel because they are the dominant tribe. So we see some fulfillment of the blessing uh, that Jacob gave to Ephraim later on as Ephraim becomes dominant. But we see a lot of sins come uh, with them as well. And so perhaps they're concerned that their younger, or I guess their older brother Manasseh, is going to now take power. 
Because Manasseh has routed Midian, not Ephraim. And so Ephraim wanted some glory. Ephraim wanted some clout. Ephraim wanted to be part, uh, to, to hold on to their power. So they come to Gideon. The men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So they have this anger. Their concern is about glory rather than unity. We've seen cracks throughout the book of Judges. But we see here Ephraim is more concerned with receiving power than they are with reconciling or making sure that unity is kept among the people of God. But Gideon is a good diplomat. Gideon is somehow growing into his own as a good politician. And we see here how a soft answer does turn away wrath. Notice we see how he strokes the egos of Ephraim. He knows what they're like. He knows what they're about. And so he kind of simmers down the situation uh, with some flattery. Verse 2. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? What have I done compared to you, O great Ephraim? Is it not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abietzer? Abietzer is again that small clan among Manasseh. What he is saying here is that the, the, the gleanings of Ephraim, the, the fringes of Ephraim are far better than the fullness of Abietzer. That is, uh, the meat of Abietzer is not as good as the scraps of Ephraim. So they're, they're stroking the ego, or Gideon stroking the Ephraim of these Ephraimites. He's highlighting and uh, flattering them and recognizing there's nothing that compares to you. And look, look what God has done. Look at this high honor God has delivered into your hands. The princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. Now again, they weren't part of the, Ephraim wasn't part of the main battle, but they did help uh, bring an end to Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? So Ephraim is concerned with status. Ephraim is concerned with pride. Ephraim is concerned with their own glory. And we see that uh, Gideon's, I guess, um, uh, cunning, Gideon's wisdom kind of turns and simmers down the situation. Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. So there is this battle with Ephraim. There's this battle over power. There's this battle over who gets the glory in this situation. And Gideon here is pleased to function as a compromising, maybe not compromising, not in a way uh, that the, he's, he's relinquishing, but he is simmering down the situation. But the issue is that there is pride in Israel. But then we see battle with Gad in chapter 8, verses 4 through 21. And we see when God's people don't care about one another. Gad is only concerned with themselves. Gad is only concerned of reprisal from Midian. They do not trust in the promises of God or in the salvation of God here. And so we see Gideon and his 300, Gideon and his mighty men, they cross the Jordan. They're in pursuit of the kings of Midian still. Oreb and Zeba are the princes. Zeba and Zalmunna, or Zalmanna are the kings. And so they're in pursuit, but the men are tired. They're tired, but they're still in pursuit. So they've crossed the Jordan. They're still in Israelite territory. Remember, there's the Transjordan tribes. Gad, Reuben, and half of Manasseh. And so they're in the land of Gad. And so they come to the men of Succoth in Gad, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Ziba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. 
Israelites, Israelites are in need. Your kin are in need. And look at what they say. Verse 6. The leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your army? We don't see their heads. We don't see them there. How do we know that you are actually going to finish the job? They're more concerned that if they do help Gideon and Ziba and Zalmunna find out about it, then the men of Succoth are going to face uh, retribution from that. They're more concerned about what would happen from an enemy than they are with helping their own people. And so what we see here, the modern guys, some of the modern guys, view what Gideon does in this situation as negative. He seems like a petty tyrant. He seems like he has this personal vendetta. The older boys do not. The older boys view it as Gideon exercising just judgment on the people of God who have now become the enemy. The people of God are now warring with one another. And here we see that Succoth and Penuel, Gad, is going against the promise of God, going against the man of God, and going against God in this situation. And so Gideon says, Gideon warns them. Gideon challenges them. Gideon asks for something, and they do not. There's not this sort of quick vengeance. It's he asks for something. They're more concerned with the enemy. So verse 7, Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, notice the Lord has done it. When the Lord delivers them into my hand, when the Lord delivers them, it shall be a sign against you. And what I'm going to do is tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. This is the judgment that's going to come upon them. This is the curse that's going to come upon them. They had bread. They should have provided it. And now they're, they're going to be torn by thorns of the wilderness. Then he went up from there. And the, the men of Penuel also the same thing. He speaks to them. Also part of Gad in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And so he also spoke to the men of Penuel saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. I will tear down what you rely in. I will tear down your idol. I will bring, that's probably perhaps why the tower is used there instead of with Succoth. Uh, but we don't necessarily have a for sure 100% positive answer as to why. But in any case, uh, uh, Gideon is going to remove that tower. So he's going to bring that down. Gideon warns, warns about judgment. And he views it as the Lord who shall bring it to pass. Torn flesh, torn towers. And so then we see Gideon bring that judgment upon them in verses 10 through 21. Now I'm going to kind of do a sandwiching thing here. You see, we're first going to see the end of Yahweh's enemy Midian in verses 10 through 12 and verses 18 through 21. And then I'm going to look at the end of uh, judgment on Yahweh's enemy Israel in verses 13 through 17. And so we see how God deals with the enemy, with the Midianites, these marauders, these wicked men. And notice the might of the Lord in that battle. We didn't have a number count as far as how large this army was, but now we have it. Verse 10. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor and their armies uh, with them about 15,000. That's still a formidable army. That's perhaps why uh, perhaps the men of Succoth are fearful. But notice what they once were. 
all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. That's how many people died in chapter 7. 300 versus 120,000. And we see how the victory is of the Lord. It was an army of 135,000. And Yahweh is using 300 men to bring that army down. How can you say that victory is of man? How can you say that salvation is of man when it's very clear that salvation is of the Lord? So we see how mighty they are. We see the might of Yahweh. And then we see Gideon also takes the last 15K out. Verse 11. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Nova and Jogbeha, and he attacked with the army while the camp felt secure. And when Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them. He took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. So the king, the army is finished. They then need to deal with the kings. And we see that in verses 18 through 21. We see this interchange going on here. And we start to see this transition to the idea of a king. You see, Gideon is going to reject in word, in what he says, he's going to reject being a king. But as we see what he does, is he does everything a king does. You see, we see he, he becomes this pompous man. He becomes an arrogant man. He begins to function like a king, and it leads to his downfall. And so we see this interchange. Verse 18. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were there whom you killed at Tabor? What men who, uh, were there whom you killed in the mountain places near Herod? And so the kings answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Gideon, you look like a king. Gideon, you look like one of power. Gideon, you look like one of stature. Gideon goes from, again, this timid man. Now he's being buttered up and he looks like this man of stature. And so what does he do? He swears an oath. Perhaps there is some you know, vengeance involved here. But it's still judgment upon Ziba and Zalmunna. Verse 19. Then he said, they, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn son, rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. And so perhaps the reason the son is going to be used here is to shame the kings. The kings die by a young man. The kings die by a youth. The kings don't want to die in shame. They want to die in honor and die by the hand of one who is a king. Perhaps also to embolden his son. Come on, young man, Jether. You're the, you uh, take the bull by the horns. You'll be the next king. Hopefully you'll do this. You'll be the one, but... As we see, Abimelech comes on the, on the scene, and he is the one who takes over in Judges 9. So we see this one, this firstborn, is timid. He is afraid, much like Israel is. Israel is more afraid of the kings. Israel is more afraid of Midian. Israel has been more afraid of man rather than God. They've been more fearful of one who walks on two feet rather than the one who rules the world. And so, perhaps that could be why that is mentioned there as well. But it perhaps also could be setting the stage for what happens with Gideon's 
son by way of a concubine, Abimelech. And so, son is afraid, he won't do it. Verse 21, Ziba and Zalmunna say, Rise yourself, you kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Takes the plunder, kills these kings. Gideon brings the final blow. God brings judgment upon his enemies. Let's go back to verses 13 through 17. Notice how God also brings judgment upon his enemy, Israel. That's how Israel was functioning. Israel's functioning like an enemy to God. And as the civil war and as there's civil conflict beginning to arise, and as we'll see the civil conflict at the end of the book, which actually happens very quickly, chronologically, we see how quickly Israel degenerates into civil war. How there's no more unity amongst the people of God. They're they're not thinking about one another. They're not thinking about God. They're not thinking about his ways. They're thinking about their own Ways And so if they're going to go against the Lord's uh, anointed in this way, the one who is set apart as the one who would be called to deliver, they're going against God. And so Gideon brings judgment. Verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle, from the ascent of Heres. Could mean the idea of returning from, from the sun, that is, from the ascent of the sun. So this battle happened at night again. And he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him and wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city, probably implying the men of Penuel resisted. And so Gideon brings them down. But they did not honor. They did not listen. They did not follow the ways of God. And they began to become like an enemy. And judgment begins with the household of God. And I think the application we can take away from these verses is the problem of strife among God's people. The Bible often talks about in the New Covenant for the church the importance of unity, not compromising doctrine, but nonetheless striving for unity among one another. Ephesians 4 talks about one one Lord, one faith, one baptism, talks about how we preserve that. God gives men, God gives men gifts to the church, men who guide the people, men who engage in ministry, men who build up, that the people of God might not be carried to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that the people of God might be knit together in the truth, that the people of God might know that they put on the new man and put off the old man, that the people of God might know what the putting on the new man looks like. And again, as we see, especially in chapter 4, Bearing, forbearing, being kind and gracious, building one another up rather than tearing one another down. Christ helps preserve it, helps preserve the unity by the truth and understanding the realities of sin, being gracious with people regarding that reality and being forgiving and forbearing with one another. The reason that strife happens is because of pride. I'm not going to talk to this person unless they say sorry. 
I'm not going to talk to this person unless they come to me first. Is that what the Bible says, brethren? Go back to Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. If you feel like you've got an issue, you go talk to someone. If you feel like you've wrong, uh, someone has wronged you, you know what you're supposed to do? Go talk to them. Rather than, yo, we've got to wait for them to come to me. This probably happens in marriages too, right? I mean, come on. People are like, I'm not going to talk. No, we should be quick to yield, to try to patch the situation, to try to work through those things, to try and say, you know what, honey? I'm really sorry. I don't remember what we're fighting for or fighting over. I'm sorry for being a jerk. That's what we should do. We should be quick to yield, quick to say we're sorry, quick to deal with the situation. The antidote to pride is, one, understanding that no church or person is perfect. Please understand that. No church is perfect and no person is perfect. Your spouses aren't perfect. Your children aren't perfect. My children uh, aren't perfect. But then we need to submit and yield. There are two key places in the New Testament that deal with pride. One of them is 1 Peter and the other is James. You can turn with me to 1 Peter first. I love how he talks to the younger people. Now he talks to pastors too. We're not supposed to lord it over people. We have to be very careful of that because pastors are not perfect either. It's not an excuse, but it gives us an understanding, right? That people struggle. So when we hear about a Christian sinning, we're not shocked. We've, we shouldn't sin, but we shouldn't be shocked when people do sin. Likewise, you younger people, submit to yourselves to your elders. Translation, keep your mouth shut. Translation, just sit and listen and learn. Translation, don't blog. Translation, don't do Twitter. Don't do any of that stuff. Just sit and listen and learn. And then one thing perhaps could be in view here, why it's especially important, is in the case of persecution. If some young guys are all zealous and they don't keep their mouth shut, it might lead to problems with, for other people. And so likewise, you younger, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another. Consider others better than ourselves. Consider, uh, uh, be considerate of other people. Not think of ourselves so highly. Be clothed with humility. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. But then also James 4. I think James 4 does have some good application as far as what we're dealing with in Judges. Now, James is a tough book, so I've heard from others who've preached through it. But one thing is very clear in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 and into 7, is that pride promotes strife. I mean, that's the heading. I mean, that's very clear. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You want something, someone else wants something different, and so you can't deal with it. You lust, you do not have. You murder and covet, cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteress. Do you, adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture says in vain the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. What is the antidote to pride? Submission. Submitting to God. Yielding to God. Being quick to listen to one another. Even men who've been given authority, you still must listen and understand situations. And it is a, probably a good sign of a good leader if one is willing to deal with the situation and clear the air and make sure things are right. It's how we promote unity by forgiving and forbearing with one another. Slow to speak, quick to listen. David says, here is instruction for us. Sometimes the people of God are a great disappointment. Sorry, it's just true. Pastors are a disappointment. The people of God are a disappointment. If you don't know that, you may not survive in the church. Don't allow God's people to disillusion you. At least be prepared for it. And watch out that it is not your passion for status or your pursuit of security that disturbs the unity and saps the energy of the church. Quick to listen, quick to yield, quick to submit, quick to to trust in what God has said, and quick to forgive and forbear. Pride is in all of us. Pride is what makes our heads blow up and look more massive than they actually are, although I have a pretty big head in general. But we just have big heads. We don't want to listen. We don't want to say we're sorry. We're young, I'm young, and proud, at least I think I'm young still. People get old and proud. People get old and proud, young and proud. We're just all proud. And so, brethren, that leads to strife. Brethren, be quick to listen, quick to enter in, quick to understand, because we don't want to have battles within the church. It will happen, but we have to deal with it accordingly. Namely, by clearing the air, forgiving and forbearing, and making sure we're saying, I'm sorry. We're saying we're sorry. So... That's Gideon's battle with Israel. Let's then look secondly at Gideon's battle with pride in verses 22 through 35. Notice we see the snare of Gideon's ephod in verses 22 through 28. Notice we see King Gideon in verse 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Israel wants a dynasty. But notice no Deuteronomy 17 is in view here. You see, they want to be like the nations around them. They want kings. And they perhaps think Gideon would be a good candidate. This is like a precursor to 1 Samuel 8, isn't it? Kings aren't necessarily wrong. Deuteronomy 17, the out, out, uh, outlining what a king must do and must look like. But what they're doing here is they want to set him up as a king. They want to set up a dynasty, both you and your son and your grandson also. Notice, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Now, Yahweh is not mentioned in that. Uh, Davis says that it might not be that they're not recognizing Yahweh. They're just recognizing Yahweh's servant. But notice how they esteem Gideon here. But by the time we get to verse 35, they don't esteem his household. Not only do they not esteem Yahweh or worship Yahweh, they don't esteem Gideon anymore. They don't recognize what he did for them. But for now, for here, they're saying, we want you to be our king, Gideon. And then we see Gideon's words, I can't do that. I don't want to be the king. And then just act like a king. Verse 23, but Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. 
Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds holy and pious. We can all say holy and pious things and then turn around and do something completely different and be completely arrogant. Even in holy and pious things we say, we say something and even something that's spiritually good, we can be arrogant about that. But then he turns around and says in verse 24, Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you, that each of you give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So Ishmaelites, uh, we we saw how it's the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east. The people of the east were probably the Ishmaelites. So they were, Midian uh, was um, a son of Keturah, one of Abraham's sons by way of Keturah. Ishmael is a son of Abraham by way of Hagar. So we see these half-siblings, I guess, dwelling together. So that's why it's probably mentioned there. I have no idea. But the point is they have gold. They have lots of gold, and Gideon wants this gold, and notice what he does with it. And they respond, verse 25, yes, we will gladly give you them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw it into the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. That amount of gold there is, amounts to 43 pounds, which I checked today is like a million dollars in uh, in gold today. Plus, uh, all that other stuff would have been worth like, what, $10 million then. Uh, but it's a lot. So he has this, and notice what he does. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there, became a snare to Gideon and to his house. The assumption is that Gideon thought he would continue to be the voice of the Lord, but what he did was challenge the place of worship that God had chosen. God said, there's one place where I am to be worshipped, and there's one office who is supposed to wear the ephod, the high priest. And so what is Gideon doing here? He is making himself the religious innovator. He is making himself the pope. He is making himself the one who rules over the king, a kingdom and the church, so to speak. He is rivaling Shiloh. He's rivaling the, rivaling the priesthood. He assumes Yahweh spoke to me and Yahweh will continue to speak through me. But just because his heart's in the right place, it's not the right place, but someone might say his heart's in the right place. Uh, But just because he might be doing something religious, thinking something, well, Yahweh will continue to work through me, doesn't mean he's obeying the Lord. And notice where it leads. There was already Baalism in his father's household. And now there's Ephodism. Now they're making this Ephod an idol. They're taking this good thing for the high priest and making it an image. All Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Gil says it was a snare to him if he consulted it as an oracle, which could not be without sin, since the only Urim and Thummim to be consulted were in the breastplate of the high priest at the tabernacle. And it was what led his family into idolatry and was the ruin of it as well as it reflected the great discredit and disgrace upon so good and brave a man. Some read the words to Gideon, that is, to his house or family, he being so a good man himself, 
It is not the thought that he could be ensnared into idolatry, though it is apparent that men as wise and as good have fallen into it, as particularly Solomon. Hopefully as we were reading through, Solomon came to mind. I mean, he's got not the harem that Solomon has, but he's got a large harem in chapter, 20, uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 29. But he's functioning like a king. He's got the gold. He's being a religious innovator. He's got the harem. And notice the name of his son, Abimelech. My father is king, is what that means. So he doesn't want to be king, but he functions like a king. And he does not function as a good king in Israel. He delivered them. We must recognize that. He is in Hebrews chapter 11, where we see that God made men valiant in Hebrews chapter 11. It's talking about Gideon. But notice how he doesn't end well. Just because someone grows old and has supposedly been a Christian for a long time doesn't always mean that they grow more wiser as the years go on. And so it became a snare to his household. But there was still a subduing. Verse 28. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So there was rest from war. But one thing that needs to be pointed out, this is the last day of rest. This is the last time of rest in the book of Judges. Notice how quickly rest goes away. Because the whole point is the degeneration of Israel. And as the people continually do not worship God, he will continually not give them rest, or at some point not give them rest. And so there's going to be no more rest. It's going to be warfare all the time. It's going to be captivity all the time for judges. There's going to be deliverance, but there's also going to, uh, but it's not going to have, there's not going to be the rest uh, that we see in 828. Israel's supposed to worship the God who saved them but they do not do that very thing. And as we see when Gideon dies, we see that his death, after his death, we see that Israel is ensnared again with idolatry. Verse 29, then Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, remember Jerubbaal means, is also a name for Gideon. Let Baal contend. But as we see, Baal does come roaring back. The son of Joash went and dwelt in his own house Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. There's his large harem. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Abimelech comes up in Judges 9. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, and Oprah of the Israelites. And so it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals. And made Baal Berit their god. Baal Berit is the main god in Shechem. Now remember Shechem was the place of covenant renewal in Joshua chapter 24. Now it's the house of Baal Berit. And we'll see more of Shechem in chapter 9 next week, Lord willing. So they worship the Baals and notice the reason why. The children of Israel did not remember the Lord their god who delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Yahweh is a great savior. He is a great deliverer by raising up these men, and yet they don't acknowledge him. They don't thank him. They don't worship him. They do not honor him, and they go back to their bales. And also notice they had no regard for Gideon, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbaal, Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done 
for all of Israel. He had his problems. He did not end well, but they did not consider Gideon enough to treat his family well and treat his family kindly. Strife amongst the people is as a result of pride. And that is the problem. That is the application. That is the key thing. Pride is in all of God's people. We all have sins. We all have pet sins. We all have commandments we violate. But it all stems from pride. Love of self. Love of our own achievements. Love of what we think we have done rather than what God has done. Love of ourselves over and against what other people have done. It doesn't matter if one's an introvert or an extrovert. Introverts can be just as proud. They might be quiet about it, but they can be just as proud uh, as the extrovert, as the one who snoots his nose. We all snoot our noses at different things, right? That's what haughtiness is, pride, snootiness. It's like the Pharisees snooting at all the, those other people, those ones, I'm not like them. We do that all the time. We turn our noses. We think we're better. We think we're smarter. We think we're greater. We think of all of these things. Proud in our own achievements, and we're often unwilling to recognize we are wrong. How often do we fall on our swords? How often do we say, you're right, please forgive me. You're right, I'm really sorry. You're right, you know, that's true. Or even sometimes if it's not a big deal, just be like, you know what, I don't know what we're fighting over, I don't know what's going on, but listen, for my part, I'm really sorry. Do we do that? Is that how we act? Is that how we function? That's how we should act. We should act in such a way to be willing to be fall on our swords. And may the Lord give us the grace and humility that we need. And when we're proud, God does humble us, by the way, uh, in many ways. And those humblings are for our good. So pride is in all of God's people. But we can also have pride regarding worship. Because again, this is key and uh, front and center throughout the entire book. Thinking we know better than God. We talked about dreams last time. Dreams for the modern Christian can be a source of pride. Extraordinary gifts can be a source of pride. Oh, did God speak to you? No, he spoke to me. Oh, I did this miraculous thing. I spoke in tongues. Did you speak in tongues? People can begin to sound like the Gnostics that we see, or the pre-Gnostics that we see in 1 John. Pride can arise. Pride can arise amongst the Reformed as well. I believe we got the truth. I believe we got the goods. I'm not going to waver in that. I believe that what the confession says. But we have to have a humility about that, brethren. We have to be patient and gracious. We have to know who we're speaking to. Know when to be firm and know when to be, uh, to be silent. And even when we're firm, we still have to do it uh, sometimes in a gracious way. That's hard to do. And so we can have these this pride with worship. And I think Davis is right. Christians do not deal with ephods, high priests, hankering for more than what God has already given for our sustenance, nurture, direction. We suddenly suggest God has furnished inadequately. We are not content merely to walk obediently to the scriptures, trusting God's providence and goodness to direct us on the proper path. No, no, no. We must have more. A specific direct word from God but what we should do in our particular problem. So we come up saying, the Lord said to me that I should, or the Holy Spirit spoke to me, tell me that. Brother, we all want to know specifics about our life. Even sometimes people want me to give specific application. The Bible generally gives what? 
A lot of general application. You need to redeem the time. What does that look like? Brethren, I all think you should read your Bible and pray. But I'm not going to say to you, you all have to get up at 5 a.m. You all have to get up at 5 a.m. And then you have to have your coffee at 5.15 and 5.30. You You don't have to do that. Just you have to be in the Word of God. Redeem the time. God gives us wisdom to think through our various situations. The Bible doesn't speak to every jot and tittle. Even when it comes to parenting. And I'm going through this as a parent. You know, talking about discipline. When to discipline. What type of discipline. There's the rod, you know, the rod and the reproof give discipline. There is the foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Well, how does that look? You need wisdom. We need wisdom to operate. The Bible doesn't give us, here's ten ways and what to do. That's not how it functions. We need wisdom. We need aid. We need help. What job should I get? I don't know. What do you like? What gives you the most money? That's not wrong, brethren, so that you can help other people. Well, what gives you a lot of money? What, helps, uh, what, uh, what, what job do you enjoy? That, those are not bad things to think through. The Bible, it says work hard when it comes to that. Get a job, work hard. <laughs> That's what it says. We, there's general, uh, general uh, principles, general commands. We don't always need to have specific every job. Until, I'm happy to help you think through specifics in your life, but know that when I do that, it's not to bind your conscience in that way. So we can be as much like the charismatic um, as the charismatic. And so, because we easily want more than what God gives, or worse, sometimes we want more while neglecting the necessary thing. There's what God says and what we think. And Davis likens this to revivals, retreats, and all those sorts of things. We really need revival. We really need to have these week-long prayer sessions where people jump around and sing songs. Well, they don't go to church on Sunday. Brethren, there's the what God has asked of us, and then there are the extras. And I think you've heard me say this before. I'm sorry if I trigger anybody, but I think revivals are overrated. I think the awakenings, in a lot of ways, had a lot of issues, a lot of good things. But the second great awakening, there was a lot of bad in that. The first great awakening, there's definitely a lot of good with that. But there's a lot of infighting in the first great awakening. A lot of people make a big deal about street or uh, open air preaching. Do you want to know why George Whitfield had to do open air preaching? By necessity, because they wouldn't let him preach in the Anglican churches. <laughs> he had to go outside. But brethren, the main thing. The the main thrust, the main focus of God's word is the means of grace. And Davis, who's my favorite preacher, is with me on this, or I'm with him on this, however you want to word that. He's like, I'm not saying that Christian retreats, for example, are an exercise in idolatry. I'm saying that Christians, no less than Israelites, have a passion for enriched, extraordinary experiences while virtually ignoring the rich normal means of grace God has provided. This comes up too when people want one-on-one time with the pastor and think that's their spiritual hour for the week. No, you need to be in church. I remember discipling a guy back in seminary and he wanted me to meet with him and I was happy to do that, but he was not in church and so I let him have it. I told him, I said, you need to be in church. You need to be under the word of God. You need to be there. And you know what? He was after that. But that's exactly what we need. 
I'm not saying we don't, uh, don't need, uh, can't, uh, can't read in other times and other areas, but the main thing always needs to be the main thing. But we just have this tendency to want more. We all have it. We all have this tendency to want more. We must recognize here's what God has given, and God is pleased to help us grow in those areas. Do we think that we know better than God? God knows best. God is good. God is gracious. And uh, we need to close with a reminder about where salvation lies. Because we're all prideful, arrogant wretches. Prideful in worship, prideful in ourselves, thinking we know better than everybody else, thinking we know better than God. Isn't there someone we can go to to find forgiveness? There is only one who considered others better than himself. That is Philippians chapter 2, isn't it? That is Jesus Christ, who though in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation by taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. The fact that the Son of God took on a human nature, you know what that's called? That is called Christ the Son's humiliation because the one who is God and remains God when he takes on a human nature took on a human nature and was born in a, in a manger, was born in an inn, was born in a lowly place, was witnessed by the shepherds for people who are lowly. He became lowly because he considers others better than himself. That you and I, who struggle with considering others better than ourselves, might have mercy and forgiveness in him, in the one who made himself of no reputation, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, and has been highly exalted and given the name that is above every other name. And he who is highly exalted has purchased for us many blessings. And one of the blessed things is that God preserves us till the end because of what Christ has done. That's also in Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. God will complete it. The perseverance of the saints, yes, we persevere, but it's really God preserving us till the end. And thanks be to God that he does so, based upon the promise of the new covenant and based upon the finished work of Christ, who is gracious and good and made himself of no reputation. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for Christ and his humiliation. We are thankful that he suffered in our stead. We are thankful that he came to this world uh, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us for a people that are prideful and arrogant. So often, O oh Lord, we think we know better than you. We think we know better than you when it comes to our lives and the situations you put us in. We think we know better than you when it comes to what worship should be and what it should look like. But we pray that you would forgive us. Help us to love the means. Help us to love the ordinary means of grace. Help us to love preaching. Help us to uh, love the things according to your word. And we pray that you'd help us in our lives to have wisdom in how to take the general principles and apply them to specific situations. We know that we need your aid. We know that we need your help. We know that we need wisdom. And we pray that even as we sinners gather as a church, uh, we pray that we would bear and forbear with one another. We pray that we would have unity among, uh, with one another. We pray that if there is any strife, that we'd be quick to, uh, to deal with that. 
So often, O oh Lord, we are too proud to be willing to be wrong. And we pray that you'd forgive us for that. Help us to be quick to say we're sorry. Help us to be quick to resolve situations. Help us not to let things stew over a long period of time. Help us to build up and encourage one another. Help us to be industrious in the jobs you've given to us. And help us to honor you in all that we do. So please forgive us. Help us to be humble. And help us not to brag about our humility. But help us to trust in your ways and to boast in Christ and boast in the cross. We pray these things.